Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, story expert, and dream vortex, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and something unspeakably nasty in the sub-basement, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about The Doll's House, issue 10 of the comic, and the beginning of a seven-part storyline from The Sandman. It was originally collected and released in trade paperback just after issue 16 hit the stands. The Doll's House was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Xylan All was the colorist and Todd Klein did the lettering. Covers by Dave McKean. Karen Berger was the editor and Art Young was associate editor. I am one and three and many, but that was the wrong question, child. Time to wake up. Before we begin this week, a few things are changing here on Endless. Like everything that we do here at Chipperish Media, we are building the train track as the train is coming, trying to figure out what the best way is to do things. So uh, first, we're going from two issues um, per episode of Endless to one. Um, This allows us to dive deeper, talk more about the art, and just not rush through this whole narrative experience. Uh, You'll see those changes reflected in the online calendar, which you can click to see via your show notes. Uh, But now that we're only doing one issue per episode, it'll be a little easier to know what we're doing every week because it is whatever the next issue is. Uh, Second, our numbering system has gone from this very complicated kind of TV series like uh, volume number and title with the issue number and the title to just Sandman the issue number and the title. So originally we had this whole complicated, we're doing Sandman volume two, the doll's house issue two, the doll's house to Sandman issue 10, the doll's house. The world benefits from simplicity. You are welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Elisa, what did you think about the doll's house? What I really enjoy about the doll's house is how we start with this kind of game of thrones feeling of royal siblings Mm -hmm. plotting against siblings. And then there's this switch of tone into a very down-to-earth 21-year-old who's a bit Mm -hmm. snarky and very relatable. And then again, we take a detour into the dreaming for some slapstick and cute critters (laughs) with a hint of something darker. Mm -hmm. And I... I just really enjoyed the way there's all these lovely shifts. It reminds me of those great old rock songs like like mm-hmm. No Sugar Tonight. I had to look up No Sugar Tonight by the Guess Who. <laughs> you know how that song sort of starts being one song yeah. and then it segues into another and then everything yeah. all comes together and it, it it's it's a it's a complex bouquet of harmonies and I, I like it. Yeah. I like it. I mean, it's a hell of a start, right? We kind of, we get this one issue, we meet desire and despair. There's world building there. We get Rose and Miranda and Unity. So that's a story into itself. We've got Rose's dreaming and that the dreaming is all weird and there's things happening. Jed's name is dropped a few times. Apparently we have Chekhov's younger missing brother going on there. Um, And, you know, some entities are missing from the dream world. So there's another narrative line, Um, you know, and something called the Corinthian is evil and out. So um, so we know we have to deal with that. Um, this is a lot of starter gun narrative kind of packed into one issue. And, um, and I find that really interesting. We do hop 
from tone to tone to tone, from flavor to flavor to flavor, and pull it all together through. Now, how we see all of that move through the rest of this uh, this series is going to be really interesting to see. But it's a hell of a starter gun. It it is indeed, and I think that um, I, the Corinthian is just going to be a, a really interesting character, as as we mm-hmm. will see. All right. Well, don't make us wait anymore. Give us that summary. We open the doll's house with a splash page. Desire's enormous fortress known as the Threshold, which was one of the early contenders for a name for the Vertigo imprint, but that's another story. In this story... We see the Natalie-suited Desire make their way through a gallery, where we see an Ankh, a book, and Dream's mask. Desire removes a ring with a fishhook and kisses it, explaining that they hold their sister's sigil, traditionally a symbol used to summon a deity, and requests that their twin Despair come join them. We learn that Despair and Desire are younger siblings and that there is a missing prodigal, and that Desire was definitely behind the whole Nada fiasco. Now Desire has a new plot to screw with Dream, and it involves a woman who is a dream vortex. Back in the waking world, we meet Rose, a baby-faced 21-year-old with a punkish streak in her blonde hair and personality. Hey, back in the 90s, a streak of pink was considered punkish. Rose and her mother Miranda have been given free tickets to England by a mysterious female benefactor who turns out to be Unity Kincaid, Miranda's biological mother and Rose's grandmother. Still living in the nursing home, all she has left of the world she once knew is a doll's house, which is where we can spot Morpheus, observing with the hint of a smile and the glint of a star reflected in his eye. Unity gifts Rose with a ring. But this family reunion has some sinister overtones. In the dreaming, Lucienne the librarian takes a census and discovers that four of the major arcana are missing. Bruton Glob, the Corinthian, whom we are about to meet, and Fiddler's Green. We learn that Rose is a lucid dreamer who is observing all this, and is observed in turn by Morpheus and Lucienne. There is another hint as to what makes Rose special when she opens a door in the nursing home and runs into the three witches who have come to warn her in maddeningly elliptical terms about the dangers she is about to face. They mention Rose's missing brother Jed, Morpheus, and the escaped nightmare called the Corinthian. Rose wonders who the Corinthian is, and we get a glimpse of him at work and play as he holds a knife over a bound young sex worker named Davy in a Texas motel room. The issue, which began with desire, ends on a note of despair. All right, Elisa. So, wow, the doll's house packed full of just stuff happening. Um, But let's go ahead and start talking about the art and Dave McKean's cover work. I think the covers are really interesting to bring into the discussion because, you know, if if you were teaching literature in a college course, you would talk about symbolism. And a lot of the symbols of these stories get collected in the cover. So we begin with a new cover design. And, you know, the amount of change that there is in the Sandman covers is 
was really, I think, a, a fairly new phenomenon. I, I don't, mm -hmm. again, I am not an expert, so I don't know if Sandman was the first or among the first to really have different storylines have such different designs to the covers. Mm -hmm. But with uh, with this new storyline, we've got sort of a ripped frame with the jagged edges stained blood red, and they frame an anguished but lovely androgynous face. There's a hint of blonde hair. I believe mm -hmm. this is Rose. The figure is shrouded in a lot of shadow, though. So there's ambiguity. There's always mm -hmm. ambiguity. And, um, and there's a cross earring that we can see in one ear and other crosses in the design. I don't know if these are symbolic of crosses as in Christianity or crosses as in a crossroads. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of suspect the latter. Um, there are also a bunch of fishing lures, and the filaments remind me, at least, of a puppet strings, which are symbols of Dream's cruelest sibling desire. And of course, the fish mm -hmm. hooks are also symbols of despair. Oh, my God. Yeah. Despair in that opening sequence with desire and despair. And you see despair with the face of a baby. You know, like with a really baby-like face, just cutting herself while they talk. Um, that is, I mean, that's an image that is going to stick with me for a while because there is the element. And this is one of the amazing things, like when you think about what the art represents and what these choices, that these aren't random choices. These are things that have meaning. And the idea that despair, like to go fishing for something, is to go hunting for something, is to look for it, is to want it. And for despair to not resist, but rather actively hunt down the source of her own despair, I think is so fascinating and interesting and not entirely unlike humanity. Um so I, I really dig that they've got that kind of, it could have been anything that she was cutting her face with, but the idea that it was this barbed fish hook, the thing we use to find something, to reach something, to get something, you know, I love it. I think it, it's hadn't thought before about the symbolism of the fish hook, but it's mm -hmm. also one of those kinds of uh, barbs that gets caught in you and you can't get it out without doing more mm -hmm. damage to yourself. Yep. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, see, there's so much in there that I absolutely love. All right. So did you have anything else about the art that you wanted to look at? Yeah. I wanted to point out that, you know, different artists, we will see as the series goes on and we have more artists contributing their talents, that different artists bring different you know, gifts to the table. And Neil has a real skill for tuning the story to that musician's frequency, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, but Dringenberg and, and, and Malcolm Jones III together, I think, are such a great team for bringing something that is gritty and realistic and yet beautiful. So you mm -hmm. get a lot of punkish grittiness you get real world stuff stuff that feels terrifying and yet has this really aesthetic um beauty to it mm -hmm. and and they also work very well between the beauty of the dreaming and and the real world 
So I, mm-hmm. I think that's, I, I was thinking about how when we start to see Morpheus as the young rock star and see that sort mm-hmm. of sexual side of him, which is reflected in the storylines and in our knowledge now that he's had this this bruising, awful love affair, that mm-hmm. we we have him, this this variant of him that is... I think a, a little bit more of a sexual variant, you know, than mm-hmm. than Sam Keith's earlier uh, version, which had, you know, other charms and and, you know, appeal. But but the fact that this is a storyline that's going to take us into discussion of sex and cruelty mm-hmm. and darkness and desire, it just feels like this is such a good art team for that. Yeah, no, I definitely think so. And I do love the way, too, that like the art style will vary based on the tone that we're in, that there is a there is a toning to the way the colors are used, to the way the lines are drawn. And again, like I am not a visual person. I am not an art person. Um, It's not that I don't like art. It's that I just simply don't have like the language really to think. I think about things in terms of movement and character and story and visuals always end up on on the back end for me, Um, which is what I really love about doing these is that it's really forcing me to kind of like exercise that part of my brain. So I'm going to say a lot of things about the art that probably are not very smart, but I'm learning. I'm, I'm like working my way into this. But, you know, but there is like, as far as like the colors that are chosen and the palette that are chosen for various different places and the way that things look. Um, and, you know, Lucien, when he's going through the various spaces in the dreaming, we get that toning in each one of these little slivers of the dreaming as he's going through and like counting all of the doing the census. Um, and I love the way that that this this team moves from one kind of art because the the art that we see especially the art that we see the art style that that despair has is different from the art style that desire has and they're in the same page they're in the page together and yet there's a difference in that in that style and it does speak to um to the way that despair feels different from desire you know it's just it's so interesting i'm just so fascinated you know that's a really interesting observation and i think you're right there is something perhaps even a little more realistic that comes across Mm -hmm. in in um yeah in despair and desire gets a little bit more of a stylized almost like a a fashion illustration Mm -hmm. Um, yes Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't thought of that. And uh, there's that moment when Lucien looks and sees Rose, oh, the dreamer, yeah. and suddenly it is one of the more realistic renderings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, there's there's just a lot going on. And I, I you know, I, I also really love the movement. There are times when you kind of turn the page sideways mm-hmm. yeah. because of the way things are arranged. And um, Oh, God, and the able sequence that yeah. makes that J shape as it moves through. And it does. It, that's what dreams do, right? They turn you sideways a little bit. I love that. Yeah. There's a playfulness yeah. 
sometimes a sinister playfulness, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's very, very cool. And it feels, um, and pardon me again for, uh, using a term from like another, like, I, you know, I think of like jazz and like the improvisational way that jazz works. And I want to use the word scatological that there's like all of these things contribute. And again, I don't know what I'm talking. I'm like mm -hmm. pulling stuff out of nowhere. I, I think, <laughs> I think you mean like scatting in jazz, but scatological, yes. I think means like it's different poopy talk. Oh, is that what that is? I'm afraid I don't know. So. Scatological sounds a lot smarter. But yeah, what I'm talking about is like scat in, in jazz. Yeah, which again, definitely I know scatting. But so, yeah. Pardon me while I lay out my ignorance for everybody who listens. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, like that that kind of, you know, the, there'll be something that almost sounds dissonant, you know, within like that jazz kind of thing. And then yes. somebody will take it and pull it back in and weave it into the rest of the piece so that even though some things feel like they don't belong, they all weave in together really nicely. And I really like that. Yeah. And you know, so, there, um, there's that that improvisational quality that comes when people are creating on a deadline. And yes. you know, we're we're talking about this as though, you know, everyone had all the time in the world to create. But mm -hmm. this it, this was a monthly book. So everyone was, you know, do it, do it, do it, finish it, turn it in. And make a thing and go on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Casablanca was like that. Actually, Casablanca mm -hmm. was done in an incredibly short amount of time. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about the way that things used to be done, like, you know, what a film schedule was back then, as opposed to now. It's, it's nuts. All right. So um, let's get into the story a little bit. Um, here we are, like we met Unity at the beginning, and now she's coming back in here. And I, th I it's really interesting. We see... In this story, um, like a lot of things that are pulled from, you know, Neil references things outside and references the long history of DC and pulls in characters in the bonus episode with Joshua Unruh. We talked a little bit about all those characters that were being pulled in. And here he is now referencing himself. Yeah. One of the things that makes Neil's world, the Sandman world, feel so solidly built is how he will pull at you know, a, a, a thread mm -hmm. that, you know, was mentioned earlier on and just weaves it through and weaves it through. And, you know, we back in Sleep of the Just, uh, Unity was a teenage sleeper who couldn't waken. We're told that after her parents died, uh, you know, she was placed in this nursing home. So now we're meeting her as an old woman. But as she says to 21-year-old Rose, in some ways, I'm younger than you. She's had 17 years mm -hmm. of life experience, and she's yeah. she's still surprised to see that she looks old, which I can completely mm -hmm. relate to now. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Yes. When you look in the mirror, you're like, hey, mom, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about the Sandman is, yes, there are so many strands that get picked up and woven through. But not all. I I do not think that the bottle imp that is mentioned mm -hmm. ever, I don't remember any stories. Josh Unra is probably going to come back and say, <laughs> no, 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 the bottle <laughs> imp appeared, you know, but I, I'm not remembering the bottle imp. Right. Yeah. Which doesn't mm -hmm. mean that the bottle imp may not yet have its day in the sun. Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> but you, you know, the idea that there are so many nooks and crannies and places to explore in this huge world that we're not going to get all of them is also part of of the brilliant scaffolding 
Mm-hmm. Well, it does. I mean, it gives you this sense of this this greater, grander world. If all you create is the stuff that you're going to actually do something with, I think it gives a story a, a claustrophobic sense. You know, it feels closed in. Um, and I think that there can be stories where that works, you know, where the claustrophobia, you want that. You want that very, very close feeling. Um, but in Sandman, it it's the opposite of that. It is there is a world that just expands in every direction you look and it expands and expands and expands, you know, Um, and not everything is going to be pulled in. Not everything is going to be used, you know, Um, but that does make you feel like if you were to just go off the track and wander a little bit, that there would be things there waiting for you, you know, there is an author. Oh, gosh. And I'm blanking on um, his name. I think there is a protagonist named Thursday in it. And oh, Thursday next, Jasper Ford, the yes, airfare. Yes. Yes. So in mm-hmm. those, you know, every book is a world, but the only geography yeah. that exists are the places and locations that have been laid out. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a yes. Jane Austen, you can have Bath and London, perhaps, but not not much else. Yeah. There's no Wales, yeah. there's no Scotland. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, so there is, I, mm-hmm. I think this would be a, a fairly large playground. Some of the mm-hmm. things uh, and, and characters here are being pulled in from actually the real world. And mm-hmm. I I love the character of Fiddler's Green. Mm-hmm. I ha- remember finding out when I think Neil just said, you know, oh, yes, Fiddler's Green is based on G.K. Chesterton. So mm-hmm. G.K. Chesterton was, um, I think he was a, a contemporary of Oscar Wilde's and mm-hmm. um, Hilaire Belloc, a bunch of other folks. He he died in 1936. Mm-hmm. And he really looked exactly like that picture of, yeah. of, of, Gilbert. His name was Mm -hmm. uh, Gilbert Keith, G.K. Chesterton. And Mm -hmm. he was just an enormously clever uh, person. I I looked up uh, some of his quotes. My my old friend, Bob Morales, um, Mm -hmm. who is also a friend of Neil's and um, also a great writer, uh, gave me his book, The Man Who Was Thursday. and I, I don't know if it was from this book, but there was a quote, the traveler sees what he sees, the tourist sees what he has come to see. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Neil was a, a big fan. I think he read G.K. Chesterton's books when he was in school as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that he brought him in as a character, but sort of crossed G.K. Chesterton with Fiddler's Green, which is yeah. a, a, a paradise that's specific to mariners, to, I guess, mm-hmm. people who worry that they, you know, if you're worried that you might perish at sea, it's lovely to have this idea that you will go to a wonderful land mm-hmm. when you're when you're done with this mortal coil. So I, I think that that is just a, a cool thing that I'm giving a, a shout out to. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, it's a, a minor spoiler for something that's to come at this point. We've mentioned Fiddler's Green, but we haven't really talked about any of that. So that's going to be very interesting when we kind of get to that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I love that. Um, the G.K. Chesterton um, reference in that was very, very cool. I like that a lot. Um, one of the things that uh, that I found really interesting in this um, from like an, a narrative perspective is this, uh, this sort of trope. And OK, I'm going to use the word trope because what it means 
means is it's just something that that is a repeated sort of device in writing. Um, and they're not all bad. A lot of people say tropes because they don't like the fact that, you know, not everything is a freaking surprise. Not everything should be in writing. Um, and that's a whole long thing. If you want to hear about that, I've, I've ranted about that on a million other things. Um, we don't always need a surprise. We don't always need a twist. But um, but this trope is the the chosen one trope, uh, the special one, you know, um, and and it's a flavor of character that is a lot of fun to work with. And I've always wanted to kind of write a character like this. I've never really gotten to it because it's really difficult to pull off um, because what we want in a protagonist is somebody who is actively in pursuit of a goal. But these people are, by definition, selected. They are not choosing. They are chosen, you know, and the difference, like the choice that characters make, the choices that they make, the things that they chase, that's what defines characters. These people are not chasing anything. Often their only goal is to survive whatever horror is trying to kill them because they are the chosen. And because that it makes it really hard to write these characters, your Harry's Potter, your Buffy's Summers, you know, um, they don't act, they are acted upon. Um, it's just a huge, huge challenge. And I see Rose coming in kind of being one of these characters. She is the vortex, but this is not through any choice of her own. This is not something she chased down. She did not want to become a vortex. She just wanted to take a nap. She wanted to take a nap on a plane like a normal person. And then all this shit started happening to her, you know. Um, and one of the things that happens, especially when we have young girls as our chosen one, um, is that they often sort of bounce around at the whim of fate. Uh, they don't direct their own stories. Um, and I think some of that comes from culturally. We have issues with seeing women as directors of their own fate. Harry, po Harry Potter does a little bit better. Um, but And Buffy Summers does pretty well. Uh, Buffy, of course, if you guys have not seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer. A, what have you been doing for the last 20 years? And B, go listen to my podcast, Still Pretty, because I'll walk you through the whole thing. It's amazing. Um, but, but they can be really challenging to write. And here we have a, a rose appears to be the central character, uh, uh, definitely like central to this issue. Um, and, uh, and I find it interesting once again, that we have Sandman comic in which Sandman does not appear to be our protagonist. Um, so that's really interesting. We open up the only one in this opening episode that is actively trying to do something is Desire. Uh, because Desire is like, well, there's a vortex. It's a woman. So that's going to be a thing. And we sit and we wait. We are endless, are we not? Yes, we wait, you know, which I love. I love that. Um, so I find that really interesting that desire is after something. And to me, it feels like if, if dream, if they can get dream to feel desire to want something, then that's some kind of victory for them. I don't know. These The family relationships here are so interesting, and I have just barely scratched the surface I know on getting into that. That is fascinating. Um, so we've got, you know... Desire probably with a goal. Um, you know, Dream's got something he's chasing because he just wants to know who's there and who's missing, you know, from the dreaming after all of this time and he gets the senses. So he's kind of got something. Um, but mostly Rose is being acted upon. This thing is happening to her. Um, even finding her grandmother was not something she went after. That happened also to her. Um, we keep going back to Jed. 
you know, uh, Chekhov's younger brother who is missing and we don't know what's going to happen. But clearly we keep mentioning this Jed. We know something's going to be happening with that. Um, so I, I find this um, I find this very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how Neil executes that kind of character because it is so incredibly challenging. I have always thought of tropes as being like the required moves in figure skating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they are there to sort of show your skill at executing these, you know, prescribed maneuvers. And if you're really artistic, you can so work them into your routine that it looks like, oh, I just really wanted to do a double axle right there instead of, <laughs> oh, I got to get this double axle out. And, you know, so so I, I, I enjoy a trope and I, I really mm-hmm. enjoy it if someone can convince me that they just can do it. Yeah, well. needed mm-hmm. to do that double axle. Yeah. I was just thinking that Ted Lasso is like, you know, this wonder. I, I'm late to the Ted Lasso yeah. gang. <gasps> I was too. I got about a month ago and I love it so much. I've watched it like four times. Because it just, it it executes every trope, you know, just so. It does it well. So well. Yeah, But to go back to Rose as a chosen one. So this was mm-hmm. pre-Buffy. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and I remember, you know, just the idea that this young, but, you know, snarky and relatable woman was a dream mm-hmm. vortex just made her seem very relatable to me. So I, mm-hmm. I identified with her. And, yeah. you know, I think her goal in the beginning is just you know, not to get sucked into the weirdness. She's going to have other (laughs) goals. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is, I mean, you will see in in the course of this Mm storyline that a woman who seems passive and lacking in agency can become someone who will tell Morpheus that he's a bit slow. Um, (laughs) But... uh, but but uh, even that statement of mine is slightly misleading. So I will <laughs> I will leave that at that. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I had one other thing that I wanted to say. So desire is setting something up, and I would never. I am not clever enough. I would never have seen this the first, second, or third time. Mm-hmm. But there are clues in here about Ooh. what desire is up to, and they're really hard to. I don't think you know you can easily solve this Mm -hmm. but the three witches are definitely there as Uh a clue and once you have read the entire series you Mm -hmm. will be like oh witches oh yeah (laughs) i get it oh yay i love that that's exciting um so the story structure here I mean, also is is really interesting. Um, these issues are being put together with uh, with a structure. Not every single one, but a lot of them have this. A lot of them open with with a cold open, is what they call it in TV. Um, I don't know. Do they call it that in comics? Where where we we open the comic page one is not a title page. It doesn't give us the whole thing, but it kind of like sets the tone for you know what's going to be happening here. So we have a little cold open. Then we have the title page, you know, in which we get. We get some story happening, but we also get all of our credits and everything and what the title of the the issue is. Um, And then we go through, we go through our story movements, and then we have a little coda 
at the end. You know, a little coda that is not necessarily part of this story, but a hint of what is to come in later stories. Um, and this is a really fun, you know, kind of structure to have. Like, I like that as an episodic story structure, because I feel like even though all of these episodes, and especially in Sandman, every every issue kind of will have a different flavor, you know, have, but this structure sort of unites it all the way through. And as somebody who worked on it, and I know you weren't working on it back then, but I'm curious, like, is that kind of a standard structure style for uh, for comics? Is this something that that Neil sort of brought into these? Or I mean, do you have, do you have any sense of that? I think that a lot of the earlier comics were more straightforward in their structure. You mm -hmm. would start, maybe you would start with some of the other. I'm just trying to think. Maybe you would start with a crime and then you'd get the detective mm -hmm. coming in um, with, you know, superheroes. And, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I think that sometimes you might start with a crime and then have the superhero come in. Or sometimes you'd start right with the protagonist. You know, Sandman is really much more of an ensemble than most mm -hmm. comics that I'd encountered in the past. So, I yeah. mean, I used to read superhero and anthology and love comics. And, you know, if we're talking about superhero comics, they were much more protagonist or team driven. Mm -hmm. I didn't know all of these terms back in the 90s of cold open. I, I have since learned them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Neil was aware of them and had studied, you know, TV scripting uh, or if this just came instinctively. I have mm -hmm. a funny feeling that it might have been an instinctive way of approaching the story at a slightly more oblique angle, catching you yeah. and bringing you in in a less straightforward way. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think... When I think of the kind of TV shows that have cold opens, you know, they mm -hmm. certainly the 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 most straightforward sitcoms did not. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, All in the Family and Maud didn't have a cold open. <laughs> they just started with whatever yeah. their situation mm -hmm. was. So right. um, I I think this perhaps it, there, there's elements of thriller and mystery mm -hmm. that that are in sandman and and so maybe that is what the connection is yeah. in part I think it's interesting. It's definitely a structure that I think works really well for this particular kind of story. It's funny because the coda in TV is something that that you'd see sometimes it would be the kind of thing that would come in and we'd have like a cliffhanger, you know, uh, where, oh, my goodness, what happened? Who shot JR? That kind of stuff, you know. Um, and I prefer a coda in which like like what Neil's doing here where, you know, we don't know Davy and we don't know the Corinthian at the end. Like we're not invested in either of them. Um, at the end, you know, the difference between like, a, a, I talk about the difference between a cliffhanger and a game show. A cliffhanger is where like, I don't know, you don't know what happens. And then a lot of times you'll tune back in only to find out it was not as big a deal as they made it out to be or whatever. It's almost always disappointing. It's kind of a cheap device. Um, game changer is when something happens and you know what happens, but because of what happened, everything's different. And you have to start, like you throw everything out, the whole world has changed. 
changed because of that. I love a game changer. Um, this coda it, uh, probably, you know, because we don't know what happens to Davy, but we know what happens to Davy. Like we don't see what happens to Davy, but we know what happens to Davy. So I would not call it like a cliffhanger type of thing. But what it is, is it's just this little vignette. And I love a coda like this, like a little vignette that's just like, here's a taste of what is happening, you know, like the kinds of things that we're going to be dealing with in the process of these stories. And I, I love that use of a coda, you know, that is something like here we have two characters, we're not involved in the rest of the story, they're not winding up anything that happened in the story that we have so far. They're not, they don't seem directly related, except that, you know, the Corinthian was mentioned, you know, so we do some reference of that. But um, but yeah, like, but to have that little coda at the end and then to open with the cold open, which is desire and despair. And then I love your connection that the coda ends in despair. Like there, you know, in the beginning, we have the anthropomorphized, you know, vision of despair. And here we have what that that character is anthropomorphizing the concept of despair the experience of despair um i absolutely love that now that you pulled that in i liked this coda already but now i like it even more oh i want to you know you you're making i love it when you say things that make me can make connections that mm -hmm. i hadn't previously made one of the i i taught a, a graphic novel writing course at fordham bunch of years ago. And mm -hmm. I had one student who originally had his hero, I, I think his hero beat up someone who was weaker than him. And mm -hmm. I said, here's the problem. He now seems like the bad guy. And the mm -hmm. student said, no, you know, because this is what happened to the hero. This is what the weaker person did to the, yeah. the hero. And I said, yeah, but we are only told about that and we are shown mm -hmm. the hero retaliating. And, yeah. you you know, if I were to say to you, you know, Dirk Blurg was the cruelest man in, in the world and, and he mm -hmm. had, you know, used to, I don't know, bite the heads off snakes. And then you <laughs> see Dirk rescuing a kitten. Mm -hmm. You are going to now see Dirk as a good guy. So what we are yeah. shown really always trumps what we are told about a character. Yes. And so we've been told that the Corinthian is a nightmare. We've been told mm -hmm. that he's a major arcana. But when we see, I mean, even though we don't see graphically, we see enough of what he's doing, what he's going to do, that mm -hmm. he registers differently with us. Oh, absolutely. I I love that. I love that structure. I love the way it pulls it together. I love the way it harmonizes that even though every issue is different, you know, and may have a different kind of flavor, different tone to it. Um, we still have that structure that kind of unites it. It's really, really beautiful. Um, so a desire and despair. Um, Opening with these two, opening with these two endless, you know, and we're seeing so, so far we've got dream, we've got um, death, we've seen now we've got desire and despair. We open with this unbelievable world building about, you know, a desire lives within a small chamber of the heart of this fortress that is desire, you know, um, and that it's, you know, I was, you could, you could walk the aorta for days and never be in the same place twice. Like, 
like it was just like the the description of that was really phenomenal and then we got all of these sigils on the wall all of these representations we see um desire kind of you know look at the mask that represents dream and sort of smirk at it and you know almost like your time will come darling you know um and and then when despair shows up there they talk about somebody who is missing you know, and the first instance is, oh, you know, that's that's dream because dream was missing. Now there's somebody else who was missing, an older brother. And we get a sense of the older three, you know, which I presume is death and dream. And then the one who is still missing, I'm guessing, from all of these little these little hints where I'm like, I want the endless story. I want to know what's going on with that. So I'm really excited to like get more drips and drabs of all of these relationships as they go. Um, you know, or the prodigal has returned is what it is, right? We think it's dream, but it's not dream. So that's really interesting. Um, and you don't have to answer that. I don't, uh, don't think, answer that. I don't think the missing sibling is one of the three eldest. I may be okay. wrong here. I, I think that if you look at the sigils, Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's because there's the ankh for death that is the ankh for death there is the mm-hmm. helm of Sandman's mm-hmm. helm that's dream and the book yeah belongs to destiny <gasps> destiny okay yeah I hadn't put all that together I was just looking at it and I was like mm. so I'm so interested in all of these things I love this the sigil when people had to communicate before everybody had a smartphone like they've had all of these years of human history that they've had to try to communicate and they have the sigils. I think that's awesome. Um, but it's it's so uh, uh, two pages. Fascinating artwork. So interesting. The fish hook. So gross and weird and disturbing and yet uh, unbelievably anchored in symbolism and and you know importance and and almost the love affair with despair which is so interesting despair's love affair with herself you know god i love it it's so cool i i also think it's interesting that despair is allowed to not be conventionally beautiful she yes. she mm-hmm. is you know you could i mean just on the face of it, despair could have been some pre-Raphaelite Ophelia-looking chick, <laughs> right. um, mm-hmm. and so it's an interesting choice to mm-hmm. to make despair, you know, not not conform to that. And I, I'll be mm-hmm. intrigued to see how that plays out, especially with all the nudity. She's always nude, yeah. in the in the TV <laughs> series. That'll be really interesting. Do we know? It would be really interesting to see. Yeah. Do we know who's playing Despair yet? I don't. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. But either. it would it would be neat to see. There, the bodies that we typically see on television are a very particular kind of body. Um, so it would be interesting to see some some diversity in body shape as far as and, and especially if we've got somebody who is constantly nude um, to see that done in a way where we're not. Um, we're not it's not being represented as as gross anybody who is not a size zero is grossly obese right you know it's just kind of the uh the way that things tend to be presented so that'll be really interesting um and you know and as we talk about diversity um here in 1990 1991 whenever this was um here we have a character who is gender fluid 
someone who goes, you know, from one place to another, who who is in the spectrum of, of gender, who feels themselves in the spectrum of gender, uh, pronouns of they, them, right? Um, this is, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I looked a little bit ahead and I believe that we are using proper they pronouns throughout the whole thing. Um, and I think that that is, um, it's really nice to see. And even though, you know, there's, there's some issues that do happen with, uh, with queer characters, you know, be, or like with, with, um, evil characters, with villains being queer coded, you know, um, and this doesn't feel like that to me, you know, like it, it, we can have people from all kinds of the idea that anybody who is underrepresented in our stories has to be perfect and beyond reproach and all of that is almost as insulting, you know, as anything else. It's just as flat, you know, to have somebody with desires, incredible power, because let's not forget that the one sibling that death and dream talk about when they're not there. It's fucking desire. Like desire is on everybody's head all the time. Desire is so incredibly important. Um, and I kind of love this. You know, this feels um, it feels very like for something that's, you know, 30 years old. Um, it feels very of the time now. It does. Although there's always been, you know, without the language of gender fluidity, I think yeah. there have always been you know, especially among performers, entertainers, some mm -hmm. who are right. sort of gender fluid. So I was thinking, you know, in the 80s, there was um, David, 70s and 80s, David Bowie, um, the mm -hmm. 80s, Annie Lennox. And, mm -hmm. you know, further back, I had not realized how, you know, Marlene Dietrich really was just mm -hmm. yes. parading around in a tuxedo, singing in a deep voice, and I think even kissed a woman in some 1930s mm -hmm. film. <laughs> so um, yeah. I think I think sometimes we are are convinced that because things were not allowed to surface as much as mm -hmm. as they are now, that these things didn't exist. But you see glimpses of it in, in, yeah. in pre-World War II Berlin, too. There was mm -hmm. obviously a lot of that whole, the, the, was it the Berlin Tales by Christopher Isherwood? A lot of mm -hmm. gender fluidity and, and, uh, and that got, got turned into uh, cabaret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you see some of that, you know, and then we have reaction, you know, and and the the extreme reaction to um to allowing this kind of, you know, presentation into the norm, you know, which it should be. People are what they are and their natural genuine expression is beautiful. Um and so I I just I really liked seeing that in this and you know and a lot of times like i work with a lot of material from the 90s and sometimes this kind of representation isn't great you know and so to see that in something from the 90s i'm like oh god that feels nice you know um and desire is as much as they are you know kind of feared and um and and clearly scheming and up to shit at the same time, desire is simply doing what desire does. Desire is simply living out their mission as was given to them. They are being themselves, you know, and part of that is um, is creating that sense of longing and desire in um, in in people and in apparently anthropomorphized concepts uh, because death and dream are also afraid of desire. And and it 
I've just recently, I think, discovered that it is the desire for something, the anticipation that produces Mm -hmm. the release of endorphins. So whether it's, you know, somebody in love or, you know, an addict, you know, seeing that that cup of coffee about to be served to them, you know, the Mm -hmm. biggest rush of endorphins comes just before consummation of caffeine. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Um, But I mean, also, like, I think desires getting played a little dirty here, like, without desire, the creative impulse, right, you know, would be gone, because we we desire having created something, we desire a thing, so we make it. And the creative impulse, I think, in, in humanity is incredibly sacred, you know. So, you know, I don't know if desire is ever going to get any credit for any of that. Um, as far as this story goes, because we seem pretty firmly on the side of, oh, desire is bad news. Um, but I, I think I think desire deserves a little, you know, a little credit, a little credit, because it is because of desire. Um, it is because of things we want that do not exist that we create, you know, and I think that that's a sacred impulse. Um, another thing uh, here, and we can touch on this a little bit. Um, we talked about it a little bit already is the Corinthian um, who is set up as our story arc villain. And as I say that, I just want to, you know, add some clarity that a villain is not the same thing as an antagonist. Protagonist wants something, the antagonist blocks them from getting it. That sets up the central narrative conflict. That's how stories are told. Um, but heroes and villains don't necessarily map to protagonists and antagonists. That has to do with good and bad, and protagonists and antagonists are absolutely morally neutral. Um, so when I say that the Corinthian is our, is our clearly our villain, clearly our bad guy, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Corinthian is going to be blocked blocking Rose or is going to be playing the role of the antagonist. So often we try to map protagonist to hero and antagonist to villain, but it doesn't have to work that way. Um, I love the idea that here we have Corinthian as an anthropomorphized nightmare. Um, he is not accounted for in the dream world. And, and when the census comes in that we're missing four of the major arcana, right? Um, and, and who it is who's gone and what they are and what they represent and that the nightmare is the one that we're all like, oh, no, you know, (laughs) that thing got out, right, you know. Um, And then we see him in the end, you know, just terrifying a young sex worker um, in a hotel room bathroom, you know. Um, It's it's pretty horrifying. Like, we're, you know, getting, we're seriously still in this horror space. And I know that we were talking about the transition from horror to fantasy, and like that, I, I thought that that was coming in this one. I think maybe I'm going to have to wait for a little while <laughs> for that full transition. Or are we always going to have like this element of horror? It's just that the balance maybe leans a little more toward the fantasy. Yes, I think I think yeah. it's that. that there's always mm-hmm. going to be elements of horror. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with the Corinthian, I, I was, I want to say this, it's a little bit of a spoiler. Should I say this or not? I think so. Okay, everybody skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't like spoilers. So when I was talking to Neil uh, about the Corinthian, I mentioned, I don't know why this came in, but I had been a really big fan of Dune. And I, I think mm-hmm. it was during a period when people were not talking about Dune, which they are again mm-hmm. because of the upcoming yeah. movie. And I, as a kid, like I read all the Dune books, mm-hmm. even the ones that do not deserve to be read. But <laughs> one of the things I really loved was the character of Duncan Idaho. And mm-hmm. he is a Gola, G-H-O-L-A. 
And mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything more, but Neil talked about that as uh, an aspect in in his thought process. Ooh, interesting. So it's a, it's sort of a teaser spoiler. It's a Gypsy Rose mm-hmm. Lee of a spoiler. Okay. All right. I like it. Okay. So now we're going into Lucien's library, which as everybody has been told and warned, this is uh, more spoiled. We're getting a little bit more behind the scenes um, kind of feel for what's going on. So what do you have in your Lucien's library segment segment for us today? Well, like, 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 like a hanging pheasant, sometimes a spoil <laughs> just enriches the meat. It uh, does. It does. I say th- I don't believe that spoilers ruin a good story. That's I, I have a very I have a like a policy about spoilers. I am not spoiler sensitive. But I know that some people are. And, you know, I try to respect that. But I think that a good story like I read Pride and Prejudice once a year. I know that Darcy and Elizabeth get together. That does not take away the joy of that experience for me. So anyway, a good story. Is a lot harder to spoil. But anyway, it's, go ahead. It's very true. Okay, so one mm-hmm. of the first things is I believe I I we found, you know, I've moved a couple of times recently. And so I, I had mm-hmm. to refine my copy of Sandman King of Dreams, which was a mm-hmm. book I wrote in 2003 about the Sandman. And it, mm-hmm. back then, um, things were fresher in my mind. I'd done a bunch of uh interviews with Neil too to refresh. Um, mm-hmm. So in the book, I talked about the fact that with the Doll's House, while uh, Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III were working on this storyline, I believe that Chris Bacciallo, who was then mm-hmm. a, a new artist, um, became really a big star in his own right, and uh, Michael Zuli were mm-hmm. either soon after or already working on their issues. And this is a trick that editors will use to do a fill-in so you can have two artists basically working at the same time and you can slot in something by another artist it buys mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the main team a little more time. Uh, so we're going to see, I, th- I think it's next issue that's going to be Chris Bacallos and we'll mm-hmm. get to Michael Zuli's up ahead. Um, so I just wanted to mention that was happening in the background. This was mm-hmm. a monthly book. I mean, it's so we struggle to get our <laughs> podcast done every week, you know, but producing a monthly book, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Quite, a, quite an accomplishment. Um, mm-hmm. So the other thing I wanted to mention is in the book, I found a letter from Neil to Karen and, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to see if it's, it's, uh, it's so funny cause it's reproduced here and it looks like some ancient computer <laughs> artifact. So this was, <laughs> this was a letter from Neil in response to, uh, let's see if I can get it so I can read it and not knock mm-hmm. the microphone as I love to do. <laughs> So this was a letter from Neil uh, back to Karen in response to some editorial comments. Dear Karen, okay, let's go over your questions. One, what does our lead character do to show you fear in a handful of dust? It's a number of things. You've correctly pointed to a couple, the majesty of his character, the fact that this is the Lord of Nightmares. I suppose, though, that for me, the third factor is his inhumanity. He is the lord of his realm, and as he will say at some point, not fair? Of course it's not fair. There is no fairness and no justice here. There's just me. 
He can plunge you into nightmare or into dreams, but often gradually, so the person being plunged and the reader hardly know what's happening at first. He is scary. He inspires awe, and he can inspire fear. Also in dreams, he changes shape. He could be a black cat with eyes of flame or a shadow or a house. So I'm, I'm just gonna, I don't, I won't read the whole thing right here, but mm-hmm. one of the other things which I loved, um, issue, uh, point number five, um, I obviously didn't make myself clear my fault about his trappings. You can take away a calculator from someone without taking away their ability to do arithmetic. You may slow them up a lot, and they may be rusty. There may even be ways to do calculations they've forgotten how to do without a calculator. But that doesn't mean they are magically helpless without one. And so I thought that really clarified what the ruby mm-hmm. had been. Um, yeah. So that that was just a I like it. little bit. Of- okay. And also, okay, pardon me, but what the fuck? Like, even his letters are beautifully composed. <laughs> like, if somebody read my emails, they would be misspelled half sentences. Nothing makes any sense. <laughs> well, he was writing this to Karen Berger, who was, you know, True. A, yes. a, a, a magical and awe-inspiring uh, creature herself. So yes. he was uh-huh. probably probably wanting to be eloquent. That's very nicely written, yeah, for, for a letter between two people, yeah. And um, so the, but, you know. Well, the last thing I wanted to say for my Lucienne's mm-hmm. library is um, I studied at Wesleyan with the science fiction writer Kit Reed. I was mm-hmm. really lucky. Um, she, she was an amazing writer and mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I stayed in touch with her, you know, all through the years, she gave me some really good advice in college, which I didn't take. Mm -hmm. And the advice was, do not combine your writing with cigarettes or drinking or any other vices, because Mm -hmm. you will eventually want to quit. And how, you know, it will become a lot harder to write. So at the time that I began working at DC, Neil was still smoking Marlboro's. And mm-hmm. um, it's so hard. He became so health conscious. It's still astonishing to me. But I was a smoker, too. I yeah. am embarrassed to say what I smoked. It was so embarrassing. What did you smoke? Oh, God, I can't. I was I was a Marlboro uh, Lights girl. Yeah, that's fine. No, I, did you, it's in. What were you smoking? Like camels? Uh, what were you smoking? No, it's more embarrassing. Viceroy? No, it's I can't talk about it. It was like the most <laughs> 70s, 80s, stupid ass cigarette. I'm so fascinated to know. I used to work in a grocery store, so I knew like all, I remember the parliaments that had like the little plastic filter and all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I've smoked everything at least once. If you define a person by their cigarette choices, I just don't want people to think of me as a Virginia Slims ultralight. I knew I was going to say Virginia Slims. I knew it. (laughs) So anyway, I, I was, um, I remember that I was trying to quit and I had so uh-huh. much trouble writing. And then I, I said something to Neil about it. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I quit. I said, you quit? You just oh quit and you just kept on writing on the monthly schedule? He's like, oh, yeah. I said, how did you do it? He said, oh, well, they didn't have my brand. I was somewhere they didn't have my particular brand of Marlboro's. So he was just like, screw it. If they don't have my particular brand, I'm just. And he seemed to 
quit without any effort. And it is oh my goodness, just one of those things. But when I look at these earlier issues of mm -hmm. uh, The Doll's House, I see people smoking and I see the Miranda, mm -hmm. the mother, saying, um, you know, like, oh, thank God, getting off the flight, having a cigarette. So mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder if I, – I don't think there is as much smoking in comics or TV or movies because I mm -hmm. don't think writers are smoking as much anymore. Maybe not. Yeah, that's interesting. But I just want to say really quickly before we continue this discussion that you've come a long way, baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for those youngsters out there, that was the Virginia Slims uh, tagline. I, I will um, show you embarrassment <laughs> in a handful of <laughs> cigarette butts. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. This idea of, of not associating something that you may have to quit with your writing. One of the things in, in the teaching that I do is I tell people to have things that they associate that they only use. Like, um, I had a friend who wore a hat, had a particular writing hat and only wore it when he wrote, um, a particular writing socks, a, a, a candle, a scented candle that is a particular scent that you use only when you write. I need to and, do um, this. Music. Yeah, no, I'm telling you music that you, cause here's the thing. You associate things very strongly. Have you ever had um, a moment where you, you know, you walk into a store and there's a whiff of perfume that like your, you know, second grade teacher had worn or that you wore when you were younger and it brings you right back and you have such clarity over that moment. Um, soundtracks are really great for that, for writing, that you have a soundtrack of music that you have not listened to before you started that book and you just listened to it when you're thinking about that book. I still have songs that I used for books I wrote 15 years ago that if I go into like Walmart and they play it on the thing, I am instantly and so clearly back in that book. So by having things, specific things, sigils, if you will, that you associate with the particular work that you're working on, it has that powerful connection. And I can absolutely see where drinking and smoking and these vices that someday we all say, hey, we're going to quit. Um, you know, when you do that throwing like a spanner in the works for your ability to sit down and write, absolutely. Um, but I highly recommend, though, the strategy of associating particular things, because that's the kind of thing that can help you with writer's block. You know, just knowing that you've got this this thing that is a symbol of your writing and you have written with, you know, wearing those fuzzy slippers for, yay, these 20 years or whatever, you know, um, it can be really, really powerful. So for the writers out there, there's a there's a reverse angle on that association that can really, really work for you. I love it. I'm going to become Vavasur of my own dominion this way. Absolutely. I did a lot of looking <laughs> up of words for this issue. <laughs> I love it. All right. So, Lisa, what's your favorite page in this one? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I'm a three witches junkie. I just, the double mm -hmm. page spread, I, I just really love them. I love the fact that the updated hairdo for Cynthia was, mm -hmm. you know, sort of 80s do, which now has probably mm -hmm. come back in fashion. I love the design <laughs> of it. I love the way um, the crone's face becomes almost a, a skull, the way the owl mm -hmm. eyes are worked in. It's just an incredible spread. By the way, I am not sure, but I was looking at an old EC Comics a horror mm -hmm. title and they had a character called the old witch and she mm -hmm. also has that sort of really large eye and i don't i 
I'm kind of wondering if this, which, you know, was originally, which is, again, from the mm-hmm. DC 70s title, um, was modeled or borrowed from the EC version. But anyway, that is my favorite mm-hmm. page. What about you? Oh, um, I love Lucien running through in the little slivers of all of these places in the dreaming in that one, you know, page that is side printed, you know, so you have to turn the book sideways in order to read it, you know. Um, And uh, first of all, Lucien, I haven't I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Lucien. Um, but I feel like I feel such love for Lucien. Lucien, the one who tallies and counts and keeps the books and like all of these things. Like I, I love Lucien. If I was living in the dreaming, I would want to be Lucien's personal assistant. Like that would be kind of the job I would really love to have. Because um, there's something about the keeper of the knowledge in a place that has where everything is ephemeral and shifting that he has a handle on it. I just there's something about that that I love. I think. Lucian's kind of hot. I'm not going to lie. Um, so I just, I love all of these places that he's going through. Um, we see him at, like at a hobbit hole. There's this knight down at the bottom. There's like, I don't know what might be a mermaid holding a mannequin. Not sure what's going on there, but it's so interesting. Um, a hall with eyes over the door, which I kind of love this, this long, you know, dark blue and black subway track, you know, um, so cool looking. It's so interesting. Um, and I love, again, that so much world building and extens- extensions of this world that are in these. And am I ever going to see any of those places? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it's really interesting. It is. Lucien always seemed to me like a Roddy McDowell character. Roddy mm-hmm. McDowell used to always play that role of the yes. really sweet, earnest, you know, sp- yeah, British butler-esque, you know, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I I miss I don't think there is anyone who quite fills the Roddy McDowell. Is there mm-hmm. a new Roddy McDowell? There isn't really. I don't know. No, I don't think so. We need a so, new but yeah. Roddy McDowell. I mean, G- Giles from Buffy, maybe to a certain extent. He but was not too. Really. He was yeah a little too solid. I don't know. A little too. Little too yeah. Sh- I don't know. Yeah. All right. That maybe maybe uh. people will tell us. Well, I think what's really funny here though is mm-hmm. that my favorite page is like you know i i think linked with your favorite part and my right. favorite part is <laughs> it so we i i maybe we are so becoming, we just kind of reverse them yeah mm-hmm. we're becoming mm-hmm. each other so um <laughs> I, so your favorite part my favorite yes. part mm-hmm. is again the lucien where he spots that mm-hmm. rose except it rose is us we are in her point of view and yeah. it feels as though a wall has been broken but you know in a way that just makes the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up it's so very cool yeah and my favorite part is the the three women the witches like i love the witches you know um i love the, the we have a, a take on that in the weird sisters for terry pratchett which i've always really enjoyed for a while i had a series like i'd have hard drives you know extensible hard drives to carry all my data and they were named weatherwax og and McGrat. <laughs> so like i'm into the three witches i love the triple goddess idea um and and so it was just it's really fun to see them show up and then they've got and i love this too where they're like you didn't ask us the right question you know you should be asking us the right question and i can understand that you know kind of sense of i am trying to help you here you know um and that was really really fun i enjoyed them a lot but i you know they are funny i don't know if they are entirely trying to help you always get the feeling Mm -hmm. that they are 
you know, they, they are amusing themselves at humans' expenses. Mm. In the much underrated 90s miniseries, The Tenth Kingdom, there's uh, mm-hmm. uh, the heroine wanders into a swamp and the fairies spot her and they say, oh, would you like to be reunited with your, your dad? And, you know, the heroine says, yes, mm-hmm. please. And one of the fairies says, no, no, it's my turn to be naughty. And, <laughs> and you know, there's that, that link between fairies and the devil. And I feel mm-hmm. there's something about the three witches that they... You know, they they will warn her, but they delight mm-hmm. in as I delight in the in the elliptical tease, they delight yes. in not answering the question that, that Rose really needs answered. Yeah, well, there is a trickster energy. You know, like usually we see trickster energy in these like male coded characters, you know? But I think the three witches have some trickster energy of their own, which is a lot of fun to play with. So I'm enjoying whenever I see them, I always enjoy that. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers... Perhaps one of our problems may prove a solution to the other. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or hide in a closet split into three versions of yourself, just waiting for Rose to walk in so you can drop some strange knowledge on her. Because, I mean, what else are you going to do on a random Tuesday, am I right? This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, we can only caution you, my posy, my puppet. We can't protect you. We will be back next time with Sandman issue 11 moving in. Until then, are we not endless, Queen of Despair? Yes, we wait. <laughs> <laughs>